Okay, I have one word from last week. It was Joshua. You guys are all looking at me like, what are you talking about? I totally blanked. When I was talking about Moses coming down the mountain with the tablets, and I went, oh yeah, Aaron was with No, Aaron wasn't with him. He had the golden calf in the camp. <laughs> and they went, oh, okay, so maybe it was her. I had to go home and look. And, like, and it was like, it was just a mental cramp. So I wanted to clear that up so that nobody brands me as a heretic and, you know, we can just move forward from there. When we looked at Hebrews chapter 12, what a great passage. I mean, this I've, I have really enjoyed our studies in this book. And uh, as we looked at Hebrews chapter 12, remember, it started with looking at the fact that we're running a race. The, the writer uses the, the picture of a stadium and, and those who have gone before looking down and and those that cloud of witnesses and, and that as we run this race, that, that we do so with endurance. We learned the importance of staying in our lane. And this thing's messed up. Um, <laughs> sorry. It's just, that's better. Uh, it's a strange morning. I, I gotta tell you, when I, Linda was blowing kisses at her husband, and I thought she was trying to get my attention, and so I'm like, what's going on? That's when I said, do I have lint or something? I had no idea. She told me during the break. Anyway, so, anyway. I had several comments that I decided not to give when I heard about that. So, we need to get you a set of blinders. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. So Hebrews twelve. <clears throat> back to you. This we looked at from there. We looked at how the writer he he talks about this chastening that God's disciplining hand in our lives, and that if we're without that chastening hand, that we probably don't belong to Him because He chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. And and we looked at his purpose in that. It's not to beat us up, not to be some mean old ogre or anything like that. Some of the weird misinterpretations of who God is and how he deals with man. But he does it because he loves us. And that he does it because he wants to draw us closer. He wants to conform us to the image of his son. He wants to teach us to think like Jesus. Uh, not just a nice saying that we have on the front of the bulletin, but that's truly what God's heart is, is conforming us to the image of his son. So we looked at that and how the, what he does and, and what that is, is, is really practically it's, the, it's being made holy. We've been declared holy through the work of the cross when we came to faith, when we came to believe in him. And now he's working and sanctifying us. He is making us holy. And so we looked at that. Last week, we looked at two mountains. We, we've looked extensively in this book at the fact that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had expired. It, is it good? It's absolutely good. Is it an expression of God's heart? It's absolutely an expression of God's heart. Is it for the church? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because the New Covenant far exceeds the old. And we looked at last week, remember, we looked at the, the, the Mount Sinai, the, the, that mountain in, that represented the law, and that the, where the people came and they, they were filled with fear and dread because of the holiness of God. And because sin had not been atoned for at that time, that not even a beast could touch the mountain or it had to die. If a person touched, they had to die. And then we looked at contrasting. I love the writer's contrast in that, that he, he goes and he takes us to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We looked at that and we looked at the benefits of the, the new covenant. Is God still holy? Is he? Yeah, he, he is. And, and the writer doesn't compromise that. And, and yet, he welcomes us in grace through simple faith in the atoning work of Christ at the cross. What a great chapter. As we're going on now into, into chapter 13, the last chapter in this book, uh, praying about where to go next. I have some ideas, but I'm not going to tell you. So um, we're looking at, at chapter 13 and, and the writer shifts. Remember, we've talked about all the way through this writer. He's He's not only a masterful theologian. He understands theology. He understands the, the way things worked in Judaism. He also understands Christianity really well. And, and we, we went through a lot of doctrine. We've gone through a lot of theology, but he shifts now because he's also a pastor. 
He also has a pastor's heart, a shepherd's heart. And so now he's going to shift as he begins now to close this book. He's going to shift into giving some really good pastoral advice. And he's going to really just be working with the people and showing them, yeah, I know that you are in really dire circumstances. Many of you, the Hebrew Christians in the first century were. Persecution was breaking out and it was going to increase. He knew that they were losing property. They were losing uh, families. They were, they lost their faith community in Judaism, which was a lot more than just Saturdays, as we mentioned before. They had great deal of loss in their lives. And he's saying, I understand all of that, but you got to understand where your sufficiency lies. It lies not in the, cro- in, 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 in the law, but it lies in the cross and in the resurrection. And so as he now begins to give, just, he's going to give advice here. But we're going to see that it's not just advice, but that it's inspired advice. And, and these are things that are standard equipment for Christians. Uh, I, I've been thinking about this and looking at this passage and I wrote some things down that uh, I'm going to read this to you because it, it's really where we are today. And, and, and the question becomes then, how do we live in what we look around and we see? This America has been a beacon of light for generations to many in the world, a country where people could come regardless of race, and be welcomed with great opportunity to work hard and, and, and to get an education and to contribute as American citizens. And I, I'm not making this about nationalism here, uh, even though I think there's great value in that. That's just a personal deal. But what I am saying is that the culture that we live in has been founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic. It's been founded in Christian principles. We're a country made up of generations of immigrants who came here for opportunity and for freedom from religious tyranny. That's how our country was founded. The Christian faith, personal responsibility, ethics, and morality was for the most part woven into the fabric of our society and reflected in the memoirs of our founding fathers and in our nation's founding documents. If you read the Declaration of Independence, you see where where the men's hearts were centered, where their minds and their hearts, where their lives were centered. They were centered in Christ, by and large. Some weren't. Prayer was commonplace in the halls of Congress. It was common. The judicial back rooms were occupied by men who prayed. People in schools prayed. I remember even in just in in my, I want to say short life, but it's not that short, um, in my medium life, no. But in my life, I remember being in elementary school and, and my teacher praying. It was still okay back in the early 60s when I was in school. And yet, Over time, we've seen a steady erosion of moral values, ethical behavior, personal responsibility, and care for our fellow man. That's the world that we live in. So by and large, we as a people, I'm not talking about us in this room, but as a people, we have lost our moral compass. That's why on on the title slide, I've got a composite. How do we navigate through life? How do we as Christians navigate and live in an increasingly godless, secular world? And it often presses in on us and presses us to conform. How do we do that? Now, I want to tell you, the answer is not found in a religious creed, good as that is, or through rule-keeping, law-keeping. The writer's been very specific about that in this book or in working hard to improve oneself. If you approach the Bible as a self-help manual, you're approaching it with completely the wrong attitude and the wrong heart. It's not about, God is not into fixing up our flesh, folks. He says there needs to be a death in your family, and by the way, that needs to be you. And it's it's about dying to self that Christ can emerge. That's the point here. So the answer, they're found in a person. They're not found in a creed. And his name is Jesus. He died on a cross. More than that, and, well, not more than that, but equal to that, the greatest thing that, that he's done for us is he rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he gives us power, the power to live, the power to embrace the things of his kingdom. So as we look at what it is to navigate through life, here's the key. I want to look at, I'm going to go back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, uh, and I'm going, to, I'm going to take this statement 
that the writer makes, and then we're going to take it apart for a bit. I want to go through a bit of an exercise with you. In Hebrews 11, 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that's belief, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's faith. There's a difference. All right, so question. How many of you have been to Greenland? Raise of hands. Ah, oh, nobody? I was ho- I, have you really, Arch? Yeah. Okay, you're disqualified. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you have to have not been there for this to work. So I, I had laid there in bed last night. I thought, okay, what's a kind, con- it's not even a country. It's the territory of Denmark. But anyway, so, all right, not having been to Greenland, do you believe that Greenland exists? Yes. Okay. So you believe that Greenland is. All right. In our vernacular, it's like, do you believe that Greenland is a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. Okay. So yeah, we understand that Greenland is. Now, how does that benefit you? Yeah. I know. It's kind of like people tilting their heads like, what are you, where are you going with this pastor? So. But the, bear with me on this. This is, in, this is, it's, I think it's really cool. It's a great exercise. It's a great way to apply this verse. It doesn't really benefit you because believing in and of itself doesn't produce anything. It's, it, it falls short of faith. The demons believe. We're told in the Bible that the demons believe and they shudder. All right. So now let me ask you another question. If you believe that Greenland exists, let's say that's a settled issue and somehow came to believe there's a priceless eternal benefit in moving to Greenland, all expenses paid, and your family can opt in as well, would you? Nancy's going, no. (laughs) Understanding that your eternal destination rested on that answer. Okay, the point is, is if, if... if you had the faith to believe not only that Greenland existed, but there was a reward in that, it would produce action in your life. It would produce faith. That belief would not be short-circuited. It wouldn't be vain faith. That's what we're going to talk about about this morning. Um, but if you believe that, that in diligently seeking life in Greenland, that there would be a reward, you wouldn't stop at believing that it is but by faith you would now diligently seek. That's the point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which, in which you stand, by which also you're saved, if you hold fast that word which I, with I, which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is speaking of faith here. But he's speaking of the possibility for there to be vain faith. And I'm not talking about anybody in this room. I, I, I want you to understand that that's something that's between each of us and the Lord. And yet it's possible to have a short-circuited or a vain faith. And it's a faith that says, well, I believe that God is. How many people out there do you talk to that say, well, I believe in God, but there's nothing there. There's nothing there. That's the person that we're, that's, that's a vain faith. That is saying, well, I believe in God, but I don't want to even, I don't want to even think about dealing with him on the aspect of my sin. I don't want to think about dealing with him on the aspect of letting the weight of my life down on him. And you guys know that through the study, I, I use that term on purpose. It's intentional about letting the weight of our lives down on Jesus because that's an action. It's the result of true faith. Paul here is concerned for the Corinthians. He's concerned that their faith is authentic and that there's content or substance within their faith. Have they let their weight down on the Lord? The same concern is seen throughout the New Testament. Luke talks about it both in his gospel and in the book of Acts. James speaks about it in his epistle. And the writer here speaks of it as well. We've looked at it. So, but the, the point is that the writer has stressed all the way through this book that once you come to Christ, that you need to stick with Christ. That there is a place where you hang in there through the stuff. And we all go through stuff, don't we? 
We all go through trials, sometimes light trials, sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's something that's relatively minor. For us, it might be major for the person next to you. But we all go through it. And his encouragement to these people who are really going through it is hang in there. Stick it out. Allow your, 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 your life to be rooted in Christ. And as you do that, you'll see that there are certain things that come into play. Chapter 13 is a complete change in tone. As I mentioned, the, the writer, he's, he's not going down the doctrinal paths any longer. There's been some great doctrine in this. He's not going through theological things. We've looked at all of that. But what he's doing here is he's going to come into a, an area where he's going to just simply encourage the people. It's clear. It's straightforward. And he's giving advice. He's giving godly advice. Now, I want you to understand something, though the advice that we see here is not, again, it's not optional. These are imperatives. If you look at the construction of this in, in the original language, and I'm not a scholar, but I read a lot of this stuff, and, and yet the structure here is that these are not, when he says, when he uses the word let us, we look at that as, as sort of a, a passive command. If I say, hey, let's go to lunch. I'm not ordering you to lunch. It's a passive thing, but I'm suggesting that it's time for us to go eat. All right? That's a, if we use the word let that way, but when we see that here, that's not how it comes out in the original. In the original, these are imperatives. All right? These are things that the Lord expects to find with his own. That's what the imperative means. Uh, what an imperative is, it's a thing that needs to be in place in our lives. And so as he begins now to go down this road, what he's talking about is things that genuine faith will produce. All right? That genuinely, diligently seeking him will produce. He is the rewarder of those that believe that he is that, or he, to those that believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And as we diligently seek him, there is fruit in our lives. So, uh, understand that. It, it, it's, it's, well, I'll, I'm gonna get ahead of myself. So, uh, but these things are truths that are seen throughout the New Testament. So, in context, I'm gonna start in, in verse 28, uh, of chapter 12. I'm going to read through the first six verses of chapter 13. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably and with reverence and godly fear. Again, there's that let us. It's not optional. He says have grace. Okay, it's a continual thing. That we can serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. So how does what does that look like to serve him? with reverence and godly fear. Chapter 13, there's no chapter breaks, remember, in the original. Let brotherly love continue, and do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are also are, are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge." Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Again, imperatives, things that he is saying, these are things that ought to be in place in your life. And when you look out at the body of Christ, you see that this is primary fruit. This is primary fruit of his spirit. It's not, again, it's not stuff that's produced. This, this isn't rule keeping. This isn't a list, a checklist for us to go down and to check off. But these should be the outworkings in the life of a healthy Christian. So we're going to look at three imperatives here uh, in this passage that demonstrate authentic faith. Uh, I want to preface by saying that these are not things that are perfected in us, uh, but they are things that would, will be in abundance in our lives. They're very practical, and they're also growth-oriented. We are all 
in, in process. We are all growing in our relationship with the Lord, aren't we? We're all, uh, uh, His workmanship, that, that, that we're people that He is working on, that people that He has His own agenda with, so that as we grow, we embrace these things in greater measure. So this isn't like, well, I failed the test, so I must not be, no, that's not where we're going. But it is saying that these are things that are standard equipment for Christians and things that we need to be growing in as we consider these things. The first we see in verses 1 through 3 is these people, or is that that authentic faith produces these qualities. And, And the first is that they love people. All right? We see that very clearly. This is the first imperative, that they love people, that we love people. The second, and we're going to look at these in greater detail, the second in verse 4 is they honor marriage, that we honor marriage, that we see marriage as a sanctified, sacred covenant between a man and a woman. We'll get into some of that as we go too. The third is while they understand money, they don't love it. Okay, uh, when he says let in verse one, he says, let brotherly love continue again. Normally in English, that's a soft command, but these are stronger than that. The way that they're conveyed in the text here. Now, as we look at this, as we look, I think we're having microphone problems again. Um, as we look at verse one, what does he mean when he's talking about love? Uh, there are four words for love in the New Testament, in the Bible. Uh, and this is sort of a quick breakdown on them. And then we're going to look at one specifically, phileo. Uh, the, the first is agape. That is a godly love. That is a, it is the deepest love that one can possess. It's a sacrificial love and it essentially is devotion. God is devoted to his people. He is devoted to us. And, and, and the sacrificial love that it's an other centered love. It takes little account for oneself. It's, it's saying, I'm going to place you here. I'm going to demonstrate love towards you, even when it costs me. Uh, and it's a godly devotion. It, it, it's a, it's a deep love. The second is phileo. Uh, we're going to look at that in detail this morning. And that's an affection. And what it is, is that's, it's a reciprocal love. It's a mutual friendship type of a love. It's a brotherly love. We're going to look at that here because he says, let brotherly love continue. That's the word Philadelphia. That's why it's called Philadelphia. It's the city of brotherly love. Uh, and that's the word. Now, interesting wordplay in John chapter 21. We covered it when we were in the gospel of John, but it's worth bringing up again uh, briefly. In John 21, verses 15 through 17, Jesus has an interaction with Peter. Standing there on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, remember they caught this great load of fish when they cast their nets on the other side of the boat, and they get to shore, and, and they're there, and, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Actually, but see, in the original language, Jesus, he says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter, do you love me with a sacrificial love? And Peter answer to him, Peter answers him with, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you as a friend, as a brother. And, and, and so, Peter, or Jesus says, feed my lambs. So he asked Peter a second time. He says, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me sacrificially? Do you love me with a love that puts others ahead of yourself? And Peter's got to be thinking about that time, at, you know, warming his hands at the enemy's fire and, and cursing and denying knowing him and all of that. And this is where Peter's restored, by the way. And, and, and so he's, He's thinking, I know, I am very conscious right now of the fact that I have not loved you that way. And Peter can't. In, in being honest, he's saying, no, Lord, I, I love you like a brother. I, I, I love you with a, a mutual friendship type of a love. So a, a, after Jesus says, tend my sheep. And I could just rabbit trail on that, but I'm, I'm not going to. We have a lot of ground to cover. So a third time, Interesting in the wordplay there, Jesus doesn't say, Peter, do you agape me? He comes to Peter's level. And he says, Peter, 
do you phileo me? Do you love me like a brother? And Peter, I, I can imagine him having some amount of relief because he sees that this is not going totally, <laughs> it's not being totally threatened. That, that he says, yeah, Lord, I do. I, I love you like a brother. I love you as a, the dearest of friends. And, and Jesus at that point says, feed my sheep. So the point is, this word phileo is an interesting word. It's not a bad word. Uh, it's actually a really good word, and we're going to look at that. There's three different ways we're going to look at it here. The third kind of love is eros. It's a physical love. It's not. This word is not used in the New Testament. However, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it shows up in the Song of Solomon. All right, that's the the divine love story that that uh, pardon me that that Solomon wrote, and uh, and yet the word uh, even though the word is not used, it's actually uh, it's alluded to in verse four here when he talks about marriage, and it's a physical love. Uh, it's 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 where we get the word erotic from, and it's a God ordained love. All right. Now, this is also a love that gets perverted and it stops being eros. And we'll see also here in this passage that when it's perverted and becomes self-gratifying, it's pornos, where we get the word porn or pornography. And that's a perverted form of physical, and it's not even love at that point. It's a perversion. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit too. The last word that we see, again, it's not used in the New Testament. Derivatives of it are, is the word storge for love. And what that is, is a family love. Uh, I also call this mama bear love. Have you guys ever seen what happens You get between a mother and her offspring? Or you see what happens when a, a, a child is in danger and the hackles go? It's like, wow, I don't... <laughs> You, know, you watch these things on television about, you know, that guy got between the bear and the cub, you know, and boy, was he in trouble. All of that. That's a storge. It's storge love. It's not just a, you know, a violent, you know, motherly, but it's, it's, it's that tenderness. It's that bond between a parent and a child. It's that bond that we have with our siblings, whether we like them or not, there's still a bond there. And, and, uh, you know, that's what storge is. And, uh, in Romans chapter 12, there's an interesting compound of this word. He says, the Apostle Paul says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, with Philadelphia. In honor, giving preference to one another. When he, That word kindly affectionate is actually one word. It's a compound word, and it's philostorgis. So he's using the word phileo and storge together. What he's saying is, as part of God's family, we show loving affection towards each other, and we're open to receiving the same. That's philostorge. So uh, philostorgis is is the word. It's only used there in in the New Testament. There are a couple of other places where storge is used in the negative, and we're not going to go there. I just wanted to give you a brief uh, look at the words for love in the New Testament. Now, there are three uses in this passage of the Greek word philea. Which is that brotherly love, that, that, that mutual love. It's not just brotherly love. It's used in different ways, but it is the word for love. That's, it's not agape, but it's a good word for love. The first in verse one, he says, let brotherly love continue. Uh, that's Philadelphia, as we mentioned. In verse two, he says, don't forget to enter, entertain strangers. It, that's not the Greek, the Greek word. This, I, I believe this is kind of a poor translation. I mean, it works, but it's one word. It's philozenia. And philozenia, when he says, don't forget to entertain strangers, he says, don't forget to love strangers. It's stranger love. He says, don't forget stranger love. And it's it's definitely a word for love there. He's saying that that's part of the Christian life. And we'll get into that as we go along here too. In verse 5, when he says, without covetousness, again, that's one word. What it means is to be free from silver loving. It's philargeros, and, and that's another Greek word that has a derivative from the word phileo for love. 
the writer here is using these different words to be very clear with the things that he's going to bring out. So when he says, let brotherly love continue, the word continue there, it, it, what it indicates, it's in a present perfect tense that it is a continuous love. It's not something he says, just love your brother and call it good. No, he's saying, this is the mark of your life as a believer, as a Christian. The mark of your life is you will be loving your brother. All right. That's why John is very clear in his epistle. He says, if you say that you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. And the truth isn't in you. This is big stuff. How many churches fall apart because people stop loving their brother? Stop walking in grace. Stop understanding that we're all in this together. And that we've got one another for strength and, and, and to hold one another up when we start to bite and devour, to tear at one another. Horrible. It's the antithesis. It's the opposite, the polar opposite of what he's saying here. This is a continuous thing that ought to be manifest in the life of God's people. That's what the writer's saying. This is good advice, but it's more than good advice. As I said, this is stuff that is absolutely evidenced in the lives of God's people. So verse two, he says, don't forget to entertain strangers for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Again, I I don't have time. I have a, a, there's a great story where uh, when my daughter was thrown out of a car at 60 miles an hour and and the thing was, I guess I am telling it. uh, (laughs) The thing was on its roof, a VW bus and, 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 I was under the dashboard with a couple of other people. Totally, I was gone. I was out, uh, and, and gas leaking in, and and it was just a mess. It was a horrible deal, T-boned uh, accident. My daughter was thrown out, sixty miles an hour, and um, this guy showed up and began just getting everybody out of the car. Nobody saw him drive up. Nobody saw him drive away. And, and I've thought ever since. I thought, Lord, did you dispatch? A heavenly helper? I don't know. My daughter, by the way, didn't have a scratch. It's part of how I came to Christ. It's a different story for another day. But a, a miraculous thing out on the roadway that day. Uh, so he says, don't forget to love strangers. Entertaining strangers. Again, the word philozenia. Uh, this is for me personally, this is convicting. Stacy walked into my office a couple of days ago. I'm preparing for this morning and I had actually printed this out with a nice little border on it and stuff and stuck it to the, the, the hutch above my desk. And it says Philozenia and it says love of strangers. Why? Because I'll tell you what, folks, uh, this is one of those deals that sometimes I tell you, sometimes when I'm studying, there's kind of like blood all over my office. Not really, but figuratively. I mean, I really got convicted about this and it's like, Lord, I want to love people I don't know better. I see this working out with my wife. It's like when we lived in California, we'd walk into the grocery store and all of a sudden I can't find her. And I find her out with the homeless guy that's leaning against the building in front, just just loving him. Uh, I remember one time we went to breakfast and, and she said, I'll be right back. And I thought she was going to the restroom. It's like 15 minutes go by and I was like, is she okay? Is she sick? <laughs> and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Stace. <laughs> I'm getting a, I'm getting a wife look right now. Um, do what Linda did and blow kisses at me, okay? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but the point is, is that she's out there on the corner with some guy in a wheelchair. She had seen him and, and it, it's Philozenia. It was that in, in, in place. I see that working in some people. They just have eyes for that. And I, I, I just began praying, Lord, give me eyes for that person that I don't know. Uh, you know, and that's something that is really important here. Uh, as a church, as a body, a very practical way for this to be worked out is to be loving those people that come through the door. I have talked with you, I've shared with you guys before, you, you are great at loving one another, and I love hearing somebody came up to me and said, wow, what a loving bunch. And I, I thought, you know, I want to be known that way. And I love the fact that there is so much love in this body and that we are exercising philozenia to, towards those that come in. That's awesome. Uh, what this is literally is it's to receive and to show hospitality to a stranger, someone who's not regarded as a member of the extended family or a close friend, 
to show hospitality, to receive a stranger as a guest. As we value others, that's the point. Um, unless I completely forget, I, I sort of have a standing policy in my life and, and with our team members here and all, uh, is that no phone call should go un, unanswered or not returned. No email should go undone. No text should be unanswered. Because what you do, folks, and that mean it may not be your intention, and, and I know many of you, and I know it's not your intention, but what you do in not doing that is you leave the door open for that person to think that they're not valued by you. And it was a hot button when I had my businesses and all that, and I had a bunch of guys working for it, and it's like, you know what? You gotta show people that they matter. You gotta show people that, that you love them. This is, again, it's Christianity 101. And as we do that, uh, we represent Christ well. The Bible says in Proverbs that in order to make friends, you need to be a friend. Verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained to them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. When he talks about remembering the, the prisoners, it's a reference to those believers that were already imprisoned for their faith, for the gospel. They were currently in jail. So he's saying, remember them. You're in the body also. Uh, and it applies to those people that, it, it, what is what he's doing is he's calling for compassion with these people. Uh, I remember doing jail ministry, and I believe that there's a broader application in this as well. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 36 says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And, and I remember that was a byword when the Lord gave me this wonderful jail ministry for a season in my life years ago. I loved going in and loving on those guys and just showing them. And I would tell them, I'd say, you know what the difference, the only difference between you and me is you got caught. And I'm not, I wasn't saying that to be trite. I'm saying that the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that there's none righteous. No, not one. And that as we have that attitude in our hearts, we understand that, yeah, the decisions that they made that drove them being there are rooted in sin in the same way that we stand condemned were it not for the blood of Christ over our lives. Just a powerful, powerful ministry. I was talking to... Uh, a brother who used to do a lot of prison ministry. Uh, and, and I just remember, I, I, as we were talking, we were having coffee not long ago, and I, it just welling up in me was like, Lord, do you want me to go back? Oh, I love prison. I just love that kind of ministry. Because, again, it's showing love to those who are in prison. When he says, as if chained to them, I believe that this is a call for empathy. You guys know what empathy is? It's the ability to place oneself into the shoes of another what he's saying, as, as though you were chained to them, I want you to imagine being chained to that guy that's in prison and going through what they're going through. That's empathy. Uh, it's to gain understanding of, of, of the trials that are, are part and parcel with being in jail for the gospel. And so he's saying, I want you to go. I want you to comfort others with the same comfort with which you've been comforted. And that's clear from God's word. Again, it's part of being other-centered. It's part of it's part of just being a person that wants to be a conduit for the love of God into the lives of other people. That's what the writer's talking about in all of this. Verse four: Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Uh, sharing with our, our men's group the other night, where uh, this, this has been on my mind, uh, there was a guy. This is, I, I was counting back the years, it was like more than 30 years ago, I was discipling this young guy named Jerry. He worked at the auto parts store in town. And um, uh, he called me up one day and, and he said, John, I got to talk to you. I said, what's up? I don't know, problem. Okay. So I waited till all my employees had gone home. I said, come on over after five and, you know, I'll have the office to myself. And, and he came over and I said, well, what's up, Jerry? And he goes, I'm having a real problem with lust. And I went, oh, okay. So what's going on? He said, I can't stop thinking about my wife. And I went, 
Okay. We need to talk, Jerry. <laughs> That's a good thing. And, and I took him to this verse. I, whenever I read this verse, I always think about Jerry. I think, because the sincerity that he was really concerned because he wanted to, he wanted to follow the Lord and he was a, just a baby Christian. And, and I just thought, how precious is that? Um, and, and I told him, I said, you know, that's a good thing, but that's the only place where it's a good thing. <laughs> so, um, the point here is that there's a very high view of marriage among Christians. Rightfully so. If you're a believer, you understand that marriage is rooted in the relationship that Christ has with his church. It's right out of Ephesians chapter 5. And, and so we understand that, that it's a, an earthly reflection of the relationship that we have with him. And, and, and it's a covenant. It's a powerful binding covenant. And God wants commitment to that covenant, whether or not it's easy. Guess what? Newsflash. Marriage is hard. I know I'm not saying anything new. It can be very difficult at times. I, I sometimes laugh when we're talking, and I'll be talking about Stacey's in my marriage. We have a, a wonderful marriage, and, and I'll laugh and say, yeah, she's put me through a lot. Because I am the one that, it's like, I just look, I think, Lord, you are so good. You gave me such a gracious woman. And if there's any mark in our marriage that makes it work, it's grace. But marriage is difficult. It can be really hard. It can be tough. We're different people with different values and different likes and dislikes. And essentially, and I don't, I'm not minimizing here, but essentially the response to that is, so what? God's in it. And he'll give you the strength to work through anything and everything if you're willing to bow the knee to him. That's the bottom line. As though it weren't hard enough, marriage is under attack in our culture. Again, that lost the moral compass thing. For for one thing, it's being redefined. Um, it's being redefined away from the biblical model that we see, from the way God set it up. From one biological male and one biological female to gender and sexual orientation insanity. And, and that's not a hateful term. I know that when you disagree with people out there that are talking about all these things, they brand you as being, no, that's not hateful. It's, it's just simply speaking from a biblical worldview, and it's tempered with a genuine concern and love for a culture and a nation that has lost its way. And, and, and folks, I am not down I'm down on sin. I am down on the lifestyle perversions that are out there. I am down on, and I believe that there, that there's biblical basis for for speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in love. When it comes to endorsing that kind of a lifestyle, no, I won't. But it comes to being accepting of the fact that somebody's made that choice, that's between them and God at the end of the day. I'm gonna love them. I want to be. I want to be a light. I want to be able to be a a witness and I want to be able to bring light to that issue should the Lord open a door. But no, there's a a point where marriage has been redefined in our culture and it does not look like what God puts forth here. That's the point. The second thing about marriage is divorce. God hates it. But he doesn't hate divorced people. You gotta know that. Every story is different. And there's so much pain and so much hurt. Destroyed trust. Things that go with that. I'm not gonna even try, I, I can, I can put my toe into that, that pool and I'm not gonna try to go into it because I know that in this room, present company included, there's a, a pile of hurt and heartache. God hates divorce. Uh, in, in Malachi chapter 2, he says, I hate the way you treat your wives. I hate divorce. And that's true. Justified or not, I'm not going there. But that's his heart because he wants marriages to work. He wants that 
relationship to reflect him well. And we live in a fallen world. There are times where those things don't go well. Um, God loves people. I, I, I've seen religious groups, church denominations that, that go way off the deep end on this subject. And, and I think that it's horrible. Treated as though that's some unforgivable sin. No, there's one that he won't forgive. And that's not giving your heart to Christ. The rest, if somebody, if they were responsible for propelling that thing along, if they've repented and they're walking with the Lord, they're good. Better than good. And upset on that. When he talks about the marriage bed here, interesting, the word bed is koite. Uh, it, it's, it's a figurative, he's doing a figurative thing. He's talking about, uh, where we get the word coitus, which is intercourse. Uh, what he's talking about when he talks, and I'm going to look at the floor when I talk about this because I don't want to make eye contact with anybody. <laughs> but the point is, all right, we're grownups. I mean, and I, I even called the people I know had their kids in. I said, we're going to be talking about this tomorrow. I want you to. And, you know, that, and that we're good. You know, we talk to our kids, all, all that. So, but the point is, is that sex is ordained by God. He says the marriage bed is undefiled. It's not unclean. It's not dirty. It's ordained. And it's a beautiful thing. And it can be, if you, but again, it can be perverted. And, and it is perverted. In our culture, it's gotten perverted to the point where it's okay if you have sex outside of marriage, it's okay if you move in with your partner. It's okay. And, and it's like, wait a minute. No. So again, how do we navigate through this? By the word of God. Period. End of story. By the word of God. He says that the sexual union between a husband and a wife is good. Uh, one who, now when he talks about fornicators and adulterers, the word fornicators is, again, that's the word pornos. Uh, pretty easy to figure where we get the words that spring from that. It's a perversion. It's not, it's not physical love. Fornication being one who engages in sexual immorality outside of marriage. Adultery being one who engages in sexual immorality within marriage. He tells us what's not unclean, the marriage bed, or what is not unclean, but then he tells us what is. Interesting here. He, he, he was talking about this. Uh, I started to look at it this. I, I, I thought, Lord, what do you have to say here? And I went to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and was looking at the verses 9 through 10. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, he, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to keep company with sexually immoral, pornos, people. Yet I certainly didn't mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, the Bible says friendship with the world is hostility, enmity with Christ, Right? Okay, so what he's saying is, is worldly practices. He's saying, he goes on to say, he, I was talking about somebody who is named as a brother or a sister. Don't associate with them. Be a light in this dark culture. Be a light to those people in your family, perhaps. We have family members that live together and they know that if they come to our house, they're not going to be together. That's just how it is. And they understand that and they respect that. We draw a line. It's not being hard. It's not being legalistic. It's honoring God. Essentially here, when you're dealing in the world, we, again, you see the, the, the stuff that's out there. You see the decay from from where we were as a nation, as a culture. And it's not just the United States. This is planetary. We live in the post-Christian era. And when you see that, don't engage in it. Be separate. Be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. And when you're dealing with other people, 
I remember my brother was living with his girlfriend and he went into a church many years ago. He since got saved. He's, he's been in full-time ministry the last few years and all. But he walked into a, a church in Southern Cal and, and a guy from work was one of the elders in this church. And he came up to him and just started ripping on him about living with his girlfriend. My brother didn't even know the Lord. He didn't have a relationship with Christ. He left and didn't cross the door of another church for years. You guys know what I say about that. Don't try to clean the fish before you catch them. It doesn't work. It's it's not practical. That doesn't mean that we condone sin. But Jesus, with the woman caught in adultery, there with her thrust down in front of him, writing on the ground, interesting finger of God, writing on stone. (laughs) Ring a bell. The point is, is that he says, where are your accusers? And she said, they're gone. And he said, neither do I condemn you. He knew that she already stood condemned. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's the point. It was a doorway. It was an entry to be able to share his love. That's where he wants us to orient. He's not saying stay away from these people. Stay away from the culture. You Guess what? Like it or not, you're part of the culture that we live in. You don't have to participate in it to be a part of it. And it's not up to you to go and convict unbelievers of sin. It won't work. There's no consciousness of sin until they become conscious of Christ, until they come to believe that he is. And then further than that, begin to take that step of faith to believe that he's the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. That's the point. So in all of this, sex within marriage, holy, good. There's great freedom in love. Sex outside of marriage is utterly defiled according to God's word. Every time that that is mentioned, it's connected with hell and with evil. God will take it extremely seriously. Sobering. The key is repentance. Seriously, folks. These are weighty issues. People that are dealing with sexual activity outside of marriage, outside of the the covenant bonds of marriage, need to repent. There is a remedy. It's not hopeless. But to be in that state in unrepentant, Sin is a very, very dangerous place to live. Interesting, when he says that marriage is honorable among all, at, in, in the first century, there were a group called the ascetics, and there are still people that are ascetics today. And there are people that denied themselves. And, and, and Paul actually warned in 1 Timothy 4, he warns Timothy, he says, stay away from people that forbid you to marry. That's not it. In First Corinthians six or seven or eight, I don't remember. It's right in there somewhere. Um, in First Corinthians, he talks about he gives his personal opinion. It's better to be single than to be married. But he says, if you're not built for that, it's better to marry than to burn with desire for one another. And and, and so, just practical advice: don't don't listen to the garbage that people peddle out there. I, I think about. Uh, Problems with the priesthood and the Catholic needing to be unmarried and, and, and that whole thing. But then you look at all of the abuse that's going on and, and the heaps of, of, of sexual abuse that happens in those circles. It, it, we weren't designed for that. And if you've been given the gift of singleness and given the gift of celibacy, praise God. I wasn't, and I love being married. And, and, and that's why there's great instruction in God's word. I, I, we're going to run out of time. I need to hurry up here and, and finish. But the point is, is that he gives clear parameters for what marriage looks like in the life of a believer. Again, standard equipment, not optional. Verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He quotes Deuteronomy and Joshua chapter 1 here. When he says without covetousness, again, one compound word 
uh, in the Greek, and what it means is be free from silver loving. It's filler girls. Uh, and what it, what it's basically saying is that specifically, we can be covetous about other things. We can be covetous about whatever we don't have, we can covet. I mean, that's an attitude of our fallen nature. Specifically, he's talking about money. That's what this word means. So in the first century, the Hebrew Christians, remember, again, in context, these guys had a lot of loss in their lives. They were going through a lot of trials. They lost their ability to make a living very often when they were ostracized from the community for their faith in Christ. So what he's saying is, look, Here's an attitude of the heart that you'll do well with. Don't be in love with money. Don't be so attached to it. Understand money, but don't be so attached to it that you're walking around all bummed out, and that's where you're at. Don't covet somebody else's money. The point is Christians tend to be contented people. Even when we want to improve the quality of our lives, we remain content in the circumstances that we're in. That's just where it's at. And it's a healthy way to be. Simply trusting God for our finances. Understanding money is not the same as understanding math. That's There's a difference. <laughs> it's, it doesn't have as much to do with economics here, what he's saying, as it does, do you love it? Do you have money or does money have you? That's the point. The writer's telling them it's about who you are in Christ, not what you have on earth, and that your focus needs to be heavenward on this subject. Yeah, do we need to make a living? Of course. Do we need to work? Yeah. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. But that needs to be tempered with trusting God for our finances, with trusting God for where we're at when it comes to money. Uh, Verse 6, he says, so we may boldly say, this is connected to verse 5, talking about not loving money, that we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? The word boldly there could be rendered courageously. So we could courageously say, we can have courage in the midst of this trial to know that the Lord is the one who provides for my needs. He is the one that provides, that gives me the daily bread. He is the one that knows exactly where my finances are at. I don't have to be tied in knots over it. Sometimes we go through times in our life where things are very lean. Sometimes we go through times in our lives where there's a great abundance. At one time in my life when I had both of my businesses and all of that, I knew wealth. I don't know wealth now, but I've never been happier. That's the point. That's what the writer's saying here. He's saying, you know what? It's not about that as much as it is the attitude of the heart, and this is not optional equipment. This is standard. This is faith in action. Uh, he, he quotes uh, Psalm 118, uh, verse 6 here, and what he's saying is real contentment comes only when we trust God to meet our needs. And that he's our security. It's having a heavenly mindset. I've heard somebody say at one time, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I totally disagree with that. The more heavenly minded I am, the more earthly good I become. It's perspective, folks. That's what he's talking about. How do we navigate in a really upside down, screwed up world and culture? We do it by staying close to him. We allow the fruit of his spirit to come and to manifest in our lives in such measure that he is the one with whom we have to do. Out of that, we have a right understanding of what's going on around us. We have a right understanding of why the world is tilting the way it is. I don't like what I see. I don't like the way that our culture has shifted. I don't like that that with postmodernism and and all of the gunk that comes with that, that we've moved away from objective truthfulness as relates to God's word, that now things are subjective. They're prone to people's opinion or prone to people rewriting the rules because willy-nilly they decided to. I don't like it at all. But I sleep really well at night because I know that my life is hidden in him. I know that he is the one who is guiding the course of my life. He is the one who blesses my marriage. He is the one who gives me the love for you that I have. 
He is the one that gives me a divine love for my wife that is never up for grabs. The D word will never come up in our home. It just won't. There's no need because we both love him. We both want his will in our lives. So in all of these things, as we look at navigating through life, I want to close with Romans 8, 14. He says, Paul says here, he says, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Simple and yet profound. As we are led by the Spirit, how do we navigate through this life? We are led by the Spirit. We stay close to the Lord. We allow the fruit of His Spirit to manifest in our lives, and we know how to rightly deal in what's going on around us. Through the agency of His Holy Spirit, He is our help. That's why Jesus said He's the helper. He's the one that comes alongside. He's the one that gives us illumination. He's the one that gives us comfort when we need it. He's the one that that illuminates our thinking. He is the one who teaches us this morning. Praise God. That God's not some God that's far off, that kind of kicked things into existence and lets it spin. There's a There's a whole field of belief that goes that way. That's not it. That's not the God that we serve. He's an ever-present help in time of need, is what the Bible tells us. That's good news. That's great news for people that belong to him. It gives us the equipment. It gives us the insight to be able to reach into a lost, screwed up, dying world with the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, oh, thank you, Lord, for this brief look in, in Hebrews at, uh, at some of these things that you uh, have deemed to be imperatives in our lives, things that you want.